The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 19th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca for two straight nights. Protesters in Central Park interrupted productions of Julius Caesar. The Hill described the Friday disruption as protesters interrupt Trump parody play. Trump parody play, a.k.a. Julius Caesar. You know, Shakespeare's words reverberate through the ages. Still, I don't even think Shakespeare could have anticipated Donald Trump. Well, actually, maybe. Cry woe, destruction, ruin, loss, decay. American carnage. But it wasn't Richard II, source of most of that, just heard quote right there, that was interrupted. It was Caesar to a cascade of booze. One pro-Trump activist interrupted the production, and as soon as she was taken off stage, her compatriots screamed at a New York audience who came to watch Julius Caesar because he felt what they needed was a history lesson about a fascist. You are all Nazis like Joseph Goebbels. This is Goebbels. You are all Goebbels. Some people on the internet thought he was saying gerbils would be proud, and you know what they would? Gerbils would be proud. The question is, is it iambic? Let's see. Gerbils would be proud. Gerbils would be proud. No, no, it doesn't even work on that level. It didn't work on too many levels exactly, except for getting some huzzas from one extreme of American politics. This actually turned out to be a pretty good test to see which conservatives have principles and which don't. Ben Shapiro, principled conservative who has been silenced by the heckler's veto, had this to say. Even if the left stopped shutting down my speeches or Anne's speeches or Milo's speeches or any of the rest of these, presumably these alt-right protesters would still go and do this stuff. They would still go and do it. Why? Not because they're trying to demonstrate that the tactic is wrong. They're doing it because they are offended by the content, which makes them right-wing snowflakes. Although they're not even really right-wing because I have yet to identify their right-wing principles other than that they don't like the left. Agreed. However, here is a thought. You might not like it. I hate these yahoos shutting down speech that they don't like, but I also hate when the left does it on campus. And this is why this anti-Julius Caesar quote-unquote protest is at least more interesting than when the left shuts down plays or lectures or anything they don't like. Because the alt-right is wrong to say that content shouldn't be heard. Of course, they're wrong. And it's wrong for them to call left-wingers who do this hypocrites because the left-wingers aren't hypocrites. Left-wing disruptors don't advocate free speech. Most true liberals do, and most liberals of any ilk over 30 loathe shutting down speech. But the shut it down crowd, they're not the free speech crowd. They're the shut down hate speech crowd. That's their most important principle. The alt-right disruptors agree with that argument. The difference between them and the left-wing shut-it-downers is simply the definition of hate speech. So you have a couple principles in tension. Speech shouldn't be silenced. All right, that's principle one. Principle two, bad speech shouldn't be countenanced. So if you attempted to shut down Ben Shapiro or a play on campus or anything else you deem hate speech, then you don't subscribe to principle one, you subscribe to principle two. You would disagree with shutting down Julius Caesar because you don't view portraying Caesar as Trump as hate speech. The crux of your argument is the definition of what is hate speech, not upholding a principle that speech shouldn't be silent. And when you do that, I would say, you necessarily embolden give rise to, probably should have foreseen, the Shakespeare in the Park disruption. 
Your dispute of that disruption isn't a principle of expression. It is just the definition of what's considered hate speech. I'd like to tell you about a bunch of fellows who anticipated attention just like this. Maybe you heard of them. Jim, Jim, Tommy, George, or as we called them, the founding fathers. They cooked up a pretty good amendment. They put it right there at the top. Free speech, they said. Here, let me sing about it from the Pulitzer Prize winning musical 1776. Shut it down! Shut it down! White slave owners, shut it down! All right, all right. To quote the bard, if this were played upon a stage now, I would condemn it as an improbable fiction. Shut it down! Edward DeVere wrote those words, shut it down! On the show today, I do not shut it down. I spiel about the president being under investigation and then push back to that scurrilous charge. And I include the bold denial, quote, the president is under investigation. But first, Brandeis professor Tom Shapiro is here to talk about his concept of toxic inequality. The phrase income inequality necessarily evokes numbers, quintiles, brackets, deltas, coefficients. So Thomas Shapiro, a professor of law and sociology at Brandeis University, wanted to find a more human way to chronicle the gaps in wealth between white and black Americans. Over a dozen and more years, he followed almost 200 families from Massachusetts, Missouri, and California. Black families, white families, talked to them, got to understand their decisions, got to see how their decisions affected their incomes and their lifestyle. The book is called Toxic Inequality, How America's Wealth Gap Destroys Mobility, Deepens the Racial Divide, and Threatens Our Future. Hello, Thomas Shapiro. How are you? I am great. How are you today? I'm, I'm well. I... And well, maybe because I'm white, I think the American dream has been working out pretty well for white people. Is that, should I have gotten that from the book? For, uh, for, for some of us, yeah. yeah. There, there, there are success stories in there, uh, both of African-American families and, uh, and of white families. And, and white families that are struggling pretty mightily yeah. that we followed. And so I think part of the American dream is not just a guarantee of outcome, but the ability to rise up. And it does seem for white families, it's working out. So here's one statistic. Half of all black people raised poor stay poor, but that's only true for a third of whites. And two thirds of black people raised in the middle, if you go by quartiles, fell to the bottom but only a third of whites fell. Whites are more likely to rise from the middle and blacks are more likely to fall from the middle. How, how can that be? In our analysis, and, and we've been looking at uh, family financial assets and liabilities over a long period of time, and not just with the nearly 200 families that we look at uh, in the book, but with some nationally representative data. And when we look at a mobility data, the, the propensity of families to move up and down the, the economic ladder, what we find is, is very clear. And that is that when white families achieve middle-class status, however you want to call achieving it, and Afri- African-Americans achieve, achieve the same status, the sons and daughters of white middle-class parents are much more likely to stay there mm-hmm. or even to climb further up, whereas the African-American adult children are much more likely to fall down. The reason for that is that the African-American middle-class family only has about a half of the wealth that the white middle-class family has, even if 
incomes are equal, jobs are equal, they're both homeowners. And so the real key ingredient there is the lack of, of, of family financial wealth in the African-American family to protect them and to help to purchase opportunities for their children. Why do they have less wealth if they're both coming from the same place? They're both rising up. It's not like uh, they're rising up from a privileged situation. So they're coming from nothing, and then they're building something. Why is the something the whites are building so much more significant? Let's make that assumption for a moment that they're both, both sets are rising from working-class backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, what we know is that white families accumulate financial wealth at a much greater degree Primarily because of, of first home ownership, homes that are purchased in relatively homogeneous middle-class white communities appreciate in value. That is, it so-called creates wealth mm-hmm. for the family that so owns it. So they buy it. the same home. The white family's home is much more likely to appreciate ab- than the black family's. Ab- ab- absolutely. And that's, if, that's, a, if, that's if, racism if, right there. If the African-American homeowner is in an integrated or diverse community, much less a community of color, yes. their home value uh, rises much less in value. The statistics overall, I have it in front of me from 2013. Maybe you have something more recent. White households in the U.S., median wealth of 144,000 black households. 11,000. And even if you go head to head with, uh, if you norm it for education, Mm -hmm. college degree, white households headed by someone with a college degree, medium wealth of 300,000. And what's it for blacks? It's about half of that. Wow. And as a social scientist, I've got to ask the question, how is it that then equally achieving families um, have the the wealth difference is still a two to one? We have so many families, so many black families who did the things that we all would say are the right things to do. They went to college, they uh, worked on their education, they tried to put their kids in good schools. And what I found, what I was a little surprised by was how often it's, they have a suck on their wealth, which is just trying to help all the other family members in their lives. They're non-immediate family. It doesn't happen as much with white people. Let me tell you, we did a study for that was commissioned to us by the uh, Fed Reserve Bank of St. Louis. And they were interested in the question of why it is that white college graduates' wealth increases so much. And listen to this, African-American college graduates' wealth over a period of time actually declines. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is not conspicuous consumption or frittering stuff away. They are helping family members out. So it tends to be the case in the the samples we looked at that first-generation African-American college graduates tend to be the most successful in their kinship networks, and they end up helping out the nephews and the nieces to community college, elderly parents and grandparents with health care and housing. So from a, a raw point of view, it looks like the wealth has declined. And some people would sit back and say, well, I'm not sure I can make a value judgment about that, but I will sit here and tell you, I think those are good decisions. Yes, to help the family yes. members. Yes, because then it give, gives them their yeah. leg up. But uh, So a question I have with this is, though, might it not have, might it not be the case that this was true for white Americans two or three generations ago, might over time this phenomenon solve itself? So if we, if we go back a couple of generations, we, we land ourselves right back into uh, the middle or two-thirds of the way through the historical legacy mm-hmm. of, of, of race in the United States. And we end up in eras uh, not very long ago where the accumulation and generation of wealth for African Americans was excluded by law and then by custom. Yeah. Home, home ownership, re- residential segregation, which still persists to a very high degree, business development, access to capital for, for business formation. So if we go back just a 
generation or two before the 1960s, I would suggest. Um, most African-American families by far had very little opportunity, no, no matter what their merits were, no matter what the education was, to accumulate any financial assets and any wealth at all. So this is, I guess, my question. It's bad now, but maybe there's reason to be optimistic in that most of the wealth accumulation or most of the history of black Americans trying to accumulate wealth happened before the Civil Rights Act and before the Fair Lending and before the Fair Housing Act. So now that we have those acts, maybe catch-up will happen. Maybe catch-up will happen. Uh, I think it was the Urban Institute. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure who it was. Did a study where they they estimated that at current levels of wealth growth in the white and black community, it would take like 280 years for something close to parity. And you have a statistic in the book. The median white family started with $29,000 more in financial wealth wealth in 1984 than the median black family. Cut to 2013, year with the latest stats. It now winds up being 119,000 more. So there's the gap. But I would think, in fact, I went and crunched these numbers. (laughs) I would think that that is almost entirely due to how compound interest works. And in fact, during this exact time, the stock market went bonkers and increased by 12%. So if all you did, 12% per annum, if all you did was invest the Actually, the gap should have been much greater than that if all you did was put all your wealth in the stock market. So it might be societal, but it's also due to compound interest and how money works. Um, I, I'm going to disagree a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, more more than a little bit. Okay, uh, let, you're going to disagree, me, but be let, nice let, about let me it, yeah. let me push back on that. Um, two thirds of the wealth of America's broad middle class, from the 20th to the 80th percentile, two thirds of of our wealth um, is in home equity. It's not in stocks and bonds. Uh, relatively small portions of it are in stocks and bonds. So um, the generation of wealth for America's broad middle class is essentially an institutional mechanism that's bounded by the rules and regulations that government forms around housing finance, financial regulations, real estate markets. What you were seeing in, in the figure you just quoted, um, my look at it tells me that homes in white communities were continuing to appreciate more than homes that were located in, in integrated or communities of color. Are there decisions that white people, black people could make to keep their wealth or guarantee, not guarantee, but maximize the chances for increasing wealth? What did you find? I'm sure there are. Yeah. I'm sure there are. You know, I had um, we had a couple of interviews, and I'm I'm recalling one from from Boston, where uh, it was an African American family that had received a large settlement from a housing suit where they had been denied some housing and some violence had occurred, and it was uh, it might have been like a fifty thousand dollars settlement at some point. And I'm talking to her uh, to the to the mother twelve years later. And 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 she said she wished she'd spent it differently. She yes. wished she had done more investment with it, but she ended up taking her kids on a vacation, and going um, to Toys R Us. I going think to Toys R Us. I remember that. Uh, help, you said it helping was, family out. I was wondering about that settlement. You said it was from a hate crime. I think it, in the book. it was from a hate yeah. crime. Yeah, 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 in a housing project. Right. Okay. So that's one example where maybe and it might be an outlier example, but right. but yeah. What I got from the book is the best choice you could make is to avoid tragedy. <laughs> because that yes. is not a choice. Yes. That's yes. usually, you have all these people whose incomes become at least middle class or upper middle class, or a lot of black families whose incomes go over 100,000, and then someone gets sick or someone gets shot, and then that's mm-hmm. it. No mm-hmm. safety net. Mm-hmm. There was one one interview I did. It, it was also a St. Louis family. It turns out to be tragic. I'm not sure we want to get into the whole story at the moment, where uh, the first time we interviewed her in 1998, uh, she is, she's in poverty. 
uh, and she's going through job training. Uh, when we get to her 12 years later and do the, the, the follow-up interview, uh, her income had zoomed $160,000. She'd become an executive chef. She was very high up there in, in that career trajectory. Then one of her sons uh, that had sickle cell anemia started to have some really severe health consequences, and she needed to back off from a job that basically kept her away all night. Yeah. She needed to be home more, and she, she came back to an income that was closer to forty dollars and $50,000. I'm not sure that's a choice. Uh, that, that, that's a decision. That's a priority that, that she makes in, in that particular situation. And for the, for the son, it worked out. It didn't work out for one of the daughters, though. Yeah. Is this one of 200 examples and the starkest one? Or it's, it, it, it seems it's, like it played out more than I thought it might. Yeah, the, the, this particular example was uh, when, when Ferguson happened, I went to our database of interviews and, and was asking our team, do we have families that had moved to Ferguson or talked about Ferguson? And this was the interview that jumped out at us. Because when we first interviewed her in 1998, and she's living in inner city St. Louis, highly segregated. Most parts of the country can't even imagine how hardline the segregation still is in St. Louis. Inner city, concentrated poverty. Her dream house and community is, is Ferguson. In 1998, the interviewer asked her, well, you know, what do you like about Ferguson? And you know, what we think about Ferguson today wasn't what Ferguson was yeah. then. It was still largely white, a largely lower middle class, working class, small homeowner fam uh, community. She liked Ferguson because uh, she thought the schools were better. Uh, the shopping and the malls looked good to her, and there were open spaces, and it looked safer. Now, she never got to Ferguson with her family. However, she rented a home uh, that was the next community just south of Ferguson. And when, when the son with the sickle cell anemia had the health issues, she moved back to save money into inner city St. Louis. And I only wish the story had ended there, but it doesn't end there. And the tragic ending is we find out about a year or two after the second interview with her, that the daughter that was five years old that we interviewed her about in 1998 was murdered by a gunshot fired from an empty lot across the street from the apartment they were living. Yeah. And she was shot through the back, stumbled into the home, and died in the arms of, of her aunt and her mother. Yeah. Um, and they and can't erase the bloodstain. Bleach couldn't bring up the bloodstains. And- you know, we can't, wealth didn't put the gun in that man's hand, nope. but with some wealth or without the disparity or just the lack of wealth, her life would have been different. Uh, it, it would have been different. You know, I, I would also suggest without, um, with it maybe a different system of healthcare, mm -hmm. with enough wealth to, to protect socially and medically protect the son in a different way, mm -hmm. maybe she wouldn't have moved back to inner city St. Louis in a community where, where violence is of a higher propensity. Tom Shapiro is a professor of sociology and public policy at Brandeis University. He's the author of Toxic Inequality, How America's Wealth Gap Destroys Mobility, Deepens the Racial Divide, and Threatens Our Future. And tomorrow, we'll have part two, where Professor Shapiro and I get into it about what he means by toxic, and also what he means by inequality. And now the spiel. The president is definitely not under investigation. How do I know this? Just listen to the president's lawyer making the case that the president is not under investigation. Let me be crystal clear so you completely understand. We have not received nor are we aware of any investigation of the president of the United States. Sir,
Of course, that was mere seconds after he said this to Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. The president takes action based on numerous events, including recommendations from his attorney general and the deputy attorney general's office. He takes the action that they also, by the way, recommended. And now he's being investigated by the Department of Justice because the special counsel under the special- Wallace caught him. You probably heard the exchange. Visually, though, it was arresting, to use a term that Trump doesn't want to hear. On the one side of the split screen, you had the purse-lipped, dyed hair, tightly knotted, black-framed Chris Wallace. And on the other side, you had the slightly less jowly, purse-lipped, dyed black hair, tightly knotted, black-framed Jay Sekulow. And yet, even these two could not see eye to eye on the basic question of if the president is really under investigation. And why would anyone say this? Just because the Washington Post reported it, and several leakers confirmed it, and the president confirmed it, and his lawyer confirmed it? It's perplexing that it would still be asserted. Here is the tweet in question. I am being investigated for firing the FBI director by the man who told me to fire the FBI director witch hunt. Now, what Sekulow was arguing was, well, let's, let's let him have his argument here. The tweet from the president was in response to the five anonymous sources that were purportedly leaking information to the Washington Post about a potential investigation of the president. Okay, so that's why it should not be taken literally, because he was inspired by a Washington Post article. Elsewhere, and this was on Meet the Press, Sekulow gave a much deeper explanation of why it shouldn't be taken literally. And that deeper explanation is that the president is very, very shallow. So that tweet takes, let's say, 15 seconds. This is not taking up the president of the United States day. Okay, you know what? Maybe the president, I don't know, should take, say, 20 or 25 seconds with a communication that could send the world into a tailspin. How many millions of dollars and hours of congressional investigation time and resources of researchers were wasted on that time that he alleged Obama ordered a wiretap with two Ps? But don't worry. That tweet only took 16 seconds. It would have been 15, but there was that extra pay. Now, let me do Jay Sekulow's job for him. He is asking us to read Trump's tweet, not as Trump's tweet, but as an amended assertion of a hypothetical version of Trump's tweet. So what Trump was really writing was, if it were true that I was being investigated, realize this, fellow counterfactualists, It would be by the man who told me to fire the FBI director. That's what he meant. That's what he really said. I actually got a version of what he did tweet and the hypotheticals combined down to 140 characters. And you can follow me on Twitter, P-E-S-C-A-M-I, to see that version. Also, that's where we'll be doing future versions of Trump implication Twitter. Or you could just keep listening to this, the podcast you're already listening to, and not have to subscribe to some other medium to get my full thoughts. Jesus, Mike. How much of my mental bandwidth do you want from me? I feel you, man. I feel you. And more on that on Facebook.com slash Slategist. Anyway, here is the truth about Trump's insistence that he is being investigated and his lawyer's insistence that that admission isn't an admission. Here's the truth. The truth is Trump is not lying. Trump is bullshitting. Trump has no idea if he is or isn't being investigated. Why would they tell him at this stage? Those are firing words as was the time Andrew Dice Clay requested a bagel spread on The Apprentice, but I digress. Ben Wittes says the Trump presidency is malevolence tempered by incompetence. We at the gist have added set against the backdrop of mendacity. It is the mendacity that is in play. Well, so is the incompetence, but the mendacity is at the fore. 
Trump doesn't know if he's under investigation. He didn't admit to being under investigation because he doesn't know one way or another. That is the quality of bullshit versus lying. We sometimes talk about this. It doesn't matter to Trump what the truth is. It matters to him that you buy his line, which may be true or may not be true. It really doesn't matter. This is not a well thought out plan. This is not one, two, three, or four dimensional chess. It might be one dimensional chess. It's maybe half a dimensional Parcheesi. It is definitely not a complicated sleight of hand. This is his habitual bullshitting. It is just his second nature. In fact, it takes a lot less than 15 seconds. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Mary Wilson, by which we mean Mary Wilson does not produce the gist. Obviously, that was only put forth in a Washington Post article. Chris Berube also produces the gist. He finds the task a never-ending cycle of spinning on a steel wheel with occasional breaks for a sip of water. But he still works hard. Gerbils would be proud. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is deliberate, sturdy, and long-lived. Turtles would be proud. Turtles would be proud. The gist, you know, I started the week with two children. I have yet to eat either of them. Gerbils would be, well, confused by my abstemiousness. They always are. Oom um, peru de peru du peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>